This week on The Difference, we are talking about reading. If you stop and think about it, you'll realize that for a young student, reading is the first skill that we are expected to be able to do while we're still being taught how to do it. As we are still in a reading class, we need to be able to read the text in our science class or our social studies class or read the math problem or even just read the assignment in our assignment book. Many students at Noble are here because this fundamental skill just doesn't happen as naturally as it does for other students, and they need the sort of specific instruction and teaching methods that we use. This week we invited Dr. Tim Odegaard, who is Director of Research and Evaluation for the Wilson Language Training Program, which is the program that we use at Noble to our school. He did two presentations, one for educators and one for parents, and he was willing to talk to me for the podcast. I started out by asking him about what led him down this career path. Well, I got into this because um, I loved working with children from a very um, early part of my life. Um, when I was 14, I got in trouble. Um, I don't know what the age is that you can have a motorcycle license in North Carolina, but in Arkansas at 14, you can ride it on your own. And my parents said that I could have one. They got me a motorcycle. I was riding it around, but I could never have a friend on it. Well, one was against the law, but more importantly, it was against mom and dad's rules. So <laughs> one day they were coming home from something, and I came around a corner, and there was another person on my bike with me. So I got ground. I, I didn't get grounded, but I was punished. And my punishment was to go, and I had to volunteer to the story hour every week during the summer <laughs> at the library uh, in the little town that we lived in. So I would go in, and I would develop the art projects that they would do to correspond to the books, and then I would slowly start to read the books. Um, I made the mistake once of reading a Dr. Seuss book, and it was painful, um, given the fact that I do have um, a, a specific reading disability and dyslexia. That didn't go over well for me, unfortunately. Uh, but I continued to like that, and then I worked in um, a preschool setting, and then I was actually in the Montessori, Montessori school. Um, so this is just um, jobs that I did to make spending money because I liked it. And then when I got to my undergraduate degree, I thought that I wanted to be a clinical child psychologist, but I did some clinical experience working with um, patients, and I realized that um, my aptitude wasn't going to be towards working with um, that population, per se. I was working with adults. Right. Um, and it may be my analytic mind, since I had seemed to have an aptitude and been developing that aspect, and been really good in my research um, development, would be where I'd focus. So... I applied to um, research-focused PhD programs and got into one that I liked and and um, a training. Um, and I actually trained as a con just a traditional cognitive psychologist. And then my um, mentor cross-trained the developmental psychology, so developmental memory, and we do some developmental memory work. And then after my PhD, I was funded to do um, a postdoc. And for that postdoc, I went and worked with two um, pretty good developmental psychologists, Chuck Brainerd and Valerie Reyna. And um, I continued my developmental training, and then I cross-trained, and I went and did two years of training at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital for Children to become in their dyspexia specialist program. So it's their training where you have to learn the skill sets that you need, the knowledge that you need, and you have to demonstrate the actual practice with kids in clinical hours that you can actually do the instruction with individuals who are dyslexic. Um, and then I, then I, I, my third training was I got involved in the, the research dedicated MRI that was brought to the, the med school at Dallas, and I was allowed to come on and get time on that, and Richard Briggs and his team trained me up on doing brain imaging and the analysis side, and then I self-taught from there. So um, I was trained traditionally as a cognitive psychologist in memory, I did memory development research, then I cross-trained over into a more general developmentalist and got trained in cognitive neuroscience and brain imaging and also dyslexia. 
So it was just kind of this thing that morphed out. Um, where the dyslexia came from was it became clear to me through going through my PhD and still struggling with my work and my writing and my spelling and even my phonological awareness um, was surfacing in very odd ways um, throughout my PhD work that maybe this is what I should do and what I should study. Um, and like when I said in the presentation, if I was going to do it, I was going to do it as the best scientist I could be. And I wasn't going to study it from this idea that I just wanted to build case or evidence that existed. Right. I might come and debunk it and say that it doesn't exist. I might have to do that or I might do anything. But whatever I do is going to be done with the sound of science from the design that I had the ability to do at the time um, with the resources I had available to me. Yeah. So that's the long-winded story to how <laughs> Tim Odegaard got doing this was... Yeah. The personal side of a dyslexia didn't surface, it was just my wanting to help kids generally mm -hmm. um, and realizing that I could do research um, and then in that I actually didn't even go into reading. I didn't get into reading until well after my, I mean, until after my PhD. Hmm. Did, were you, I mean I know obviously we know a lot more about dyslexia now than probably when you were in high school. Were you diagnosed? I mean, did you know that? <clears throat> no, and this is a, this is one of those cautionary tales that any researcher who, again, takes my philosophy, you do the best research and acknowledge where the strengths and weaknesses are. Um, one of the difficulties with identification is, is that you have to determine how you're going to define the disability. Right. And if we use cut points, if we use discrepancy, and I was in Texas at the time, and I was in third grade, and the Texas state law existed. Um, and what it required was, was that your reading skills had to be discrepant from your IQ. Right. And because I was compensating as a dyslexic, my reading scores were low, and I knew that I couldn't read worth a darn, but they weren't low enough. And then, be, for whatever reason, my IQ tested on heavy language-based IQ tests is as not overly high. So there wasn't the spread that they set up as their right. criteria to be called dyslexic. And if you weren't called dyslexic, then in the state you couldn't get you intervention, even though in Texas they had been doing this for a long time. So I should have been protected by a new state law, and there were people there that could have helped me. Hmm. Were they in that school? No. Would it have helped if there had been different people in the school? Right. Maybe. But at the time, with the discrepancy, identification of IQ, reading ability discrepance, however you define that, 15 points on, a, on norm reference tests, it's just one way of doing it. Yeah. And there's flaws to every approach. Many of our parents may find that to be very familiar. And in fact, up until just a couple of years ago, North Carolina used the discrepancy model for categorizing learning disabilities. So that, was, that makes the response to instruction framework the best thing we have to address this because you can get rid of some of those problems. Having seen this process in action, what do you think the odds are that if if I'm a student in you know rural public high school or public middle school in North Carolina or somewhere that there's going to be all those dots connected? Do you see it that there's a framework in place that this happens at you know with any regularity? Because I mean we see kids coming here and and obviously. You know, there's a different story for each kid on how sure. they got recognized right. and how they determined that this was the right school for them. And I, I just wonder, you know, is is the mechanism in place for the majority of kids that might have these issues? Well, the mechanism could be in place in any place. It could be in a rural setting. It could be in an urban setting. It could be in a, in a middle town America kind of setting, right? Mm -hmm. um, what it takes is knowledge. It takes leadership. 
It takes teams being able to implement good practice with good um, testing and data collection and being able to use that and not let it sit around in computer bases or sit around in filing cabinets right. and actually come up with an integrated approach to doing um, instruction, testing, tracking, um, professional development or professional learning of teachers sure. and of leaders to where they know what's supposed to be happening and then you have an empowering context where it's all about raising everybody horizontally to where everybody rises up. The right. students rise up in their proficiency, the leaders get to be better leaders, the teachers get to be better teachers and we do that by having good knowledge and good practice in place and we have systems that can come in and integrate that. That can happen anywhere. Sure. Do you see over the years that you've been looking into this, have you seen a movement in that direction in general or is it kind of hit or miss? Well, this is a tough question because <laughs> one one side of me, and I actually answered this for a dear friend recently, and I told her, um, she asked, well, what do you think since we were doing this type of a thing back in the 90s and you know all of the, the, all of the reading centers were up and running and we were using these statistics, do you think that they're still applicable today? Which the statistics were scary. They were used to generate, not from a fear factor, but just to document the very real um, public issue that literacy and reading was having. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that some kids, um, through no fault of their own, are going to be struggling even more is a real concern for this nation. Mm -hmm. Because the outcomes and consequences, it's not a death sentence. And so I, that's why I think the success stories are important, is, is that it's not a death sentence. But it is linked in correlations and through associations to um, some some pretty unfortunate life outcomes. Yeah. Um, increased teen pregnancy, increased incarceration, um, uh, lower health health health. Um, those you know lower SES. Those are just not outcomes that you know I want for my little five year old right. um, to have. Um, now it's not causation. Sure. Their relationships. A lot of so, and my answer to her was like, no, really, I don't, I don't see that we are moving. But then there's pockets, um, and so we, I think we know better now. So you have that. So I think we actually know what those systems can look like now, and we have models of excellence that we can look to, um, and they're out there. And I'm not sure that there were as many of those models of excellence 15, 20 years ago as there are today. So as a nation, as a whole, if you look at our NAEP scores, are we doing any better? I don't think so. But do we have some real concrete models of excellence of, of places that are getting it right? I think, yeah, we do. And are they all private schools? No, they're not. I think right. there's some public schools that are doing some really good stuff. Right. So I think that's the promise right there. Yeah. Um, and so but the hard work still left to do um, is the science is there. We know what to do. But how do we get it into the teacher's head and get them practically knowledgeable? And how do we support them with the training and the environment and the culture that allows them to be empowered? Um, and give them the information and get the team of people together to use that information to really give the students what they need to be successful. You know, as, as you think about it all, it's like, how are how is anybody able to do that? You know, how is anybody able to read? There's so many factors and things, you know, and... I, you talked about your son. I have a nine-month-old, and so oh you know, I'm 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 reading Goodnight Moon to him, and, yeah. and thinking, what is, you know, what is he? How is this? Hap what's happening in his brain right now? You know, and it's just a well. It's, I bet you know, as a parent, you probably have a good hunch about what it takes. Because what are you doing to help him prepare him for his future well, life? Well, and that's what I wonder. Like, I, 
I find myself asking the most bizarre questions about Goodnight Moon. You know, like, okay, I'm, I'm reading, I'm pointing those out. Those are kittens. But we have a cat. They make the same sound. And he knows the cat. And he knows, how does he connect in his mind that kittens and cats are two words for the same thing? <laughs> you know, and where does that all come? How does that so happen? So the wonderful thing about this is you're highlighting the fundamental thing that, that cannot be expressed enough, which is reading is language. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about is language development. Right. And so the most fundamental skill set to develop in anybody is language skills. Yeah. And develop a breadth of vocabulary. This is the very basis of what it means to study language and to ask these questions about how these form. And the most wonderful thing in the world as a parent is you get to see this laboratory unfolding and see that they actually do make these connections. And it's wonderful and beautiful and it's amazing that it happens and how. And it's fun to watch a nine-month-old do that. A nine-month-old do that. Or watch my five-year-old continue to do that. Well, thank you for talking to me. Well, thank you. In talking to Dr. Odegaard, it was clear that I was talking to someone who really knew what he was speaking about and had a lot of knowledge. And so uh, it's hard to fit all of that into a 15-minute podcast. So what I've done is I've taken some of the... Uh, more scientific aspects of our discussion and I've put it at the end so if you're uh, if you're not interested in that then you can feel free to sign out now and uh, if you would like a little bit more uh, information a little bit deeper understanding into some of his research about using a brain scanner what that's like for students who go into it um, and some of the the ways that he would like research to go in the future then feel free to keep listening. If not, thank you for joining us here on The Difference. If you'd like more information about the Wilson Reading Program, you can find that on our website at noblenights.org. And as always, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes by searching for Noble Academy. We also post our podcast episodes and other content on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash nobleacademy. It seems like the, uh, the brain scanner MRI... Is like every time I hear about new research, it seems like the, you know, the 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 neuroimaging is is sort of at the center of it. You know, well, it's that's, a really that, interesting research going on. There's a great factoid I, you may have heard it, which is um, people think that the importance of a study is much greater if there's a picture of a brain in it, and the findings are much <laughs> more important. That. Yeah, it's a factoid. I'm butchering it, but yeah, that's right. the gist, right? Yeah. Is if, if I take a study and I leave the same study as an imaging study and I don't put a picture of the brain in it, then they don't think it's as important if I put a picture of the brain in it. Um, somebody documented that at that's some point. But yes, um, there is really important work to be done with the brain imaging. And we're actually at this really exciting point now where we know enough about the networks in the brain these, these areas that are at one point talking to another point in the brain and how they work in this distributed fashion to go about and is this orchestra doing stuff. And there was a shift and you're not allowed to just do, it lights up over here, it doesn't light up over there type of research. You've not been able to do that for quite a while now. Hmm. It has to be asking better questions than right. be conceptually and theoretically driven and they need to be um, more integrative in their approach of thinking about how, how the brain is working as a whole, opposed to just saying, this is blown out, that's not blown out. So what we can then do is, is that we can actually get to this point, and we can start asking the more important questions about, how does this inform instruction? How do we take and say, well, we've been doing a lot of good, basic, conceptual, theoretical work, so when we look at these networks that seem to be predictive of outcomes and response, what does that 
mean cognitively? What does that mean motivationally? What does that link up to these more things that we could measure maybe with paper and pencils and come up with better diagnostics, as right. I alluded to in my yeah. talk, to actually give to people? Because I don't think the solution, nor have I ever advocated for it being an MRI on every campus on this, in, this, in, this, in this country. Yeah. Even if we could come up with the technological advancements to do it, I mean, maybe it would be something like you go in and you get your Snell chart out and you've got your little, um, you know, you do it. But I don't think it's going to be like an eye exam or a hearing exam. Maybe it will be someday. And that would be awesome. But I don't know when that's going to come. And definitely the intermediate step is to say, we're starting to link into things that aren't necessarily part of what we thought about with that core reading network. And they're popping out and they're consistent. What are those regions associated with in a larger setup? Are they attentional? What type of attentional? Are they selective? Are they alerting attention? Is it not attention at all? Is it inhibition? Right. Is it working memory? What aspect of working memory is it? Is it the phonological place that we hold this working memory? Or is it the impulse control to keep from interference happening to block that out? Is it the pathways that allow us to go in and pull information out to put into working memory? What is it? Because mm -hmm. this gives us clues. And those are things that we can measure in paper, paper and pencil test to give us an insight. The insight wouldn't be that we would necessarily teach that. Maybe we would. But the hope would be that we could then identify how we would slightly um, differentiate the instruction or maybe just prepare ourselves that this kid's going to take longer and need more response so that we don't think that when he doesn't respond in two months, three months, four months, something's wrong with the instruction. Right. Maybe for that kid, the instruction is working at the pace that it's going to work with his, neuro his neurocognitive um, strengths and weaknesses, and we just need to let him sit and run the course, and he will eventually get what he needs. And maybe we could find a way to increase that. But yeah. for the time being, we'll know that that would be a sign that it's going to be a slower response rate. And until somebody finds a better way to do it, we know the best way to do it right now, and this is the response rate we're going to get. Right. I don't think that's crazy, and I don't think that's damning to a child, because right now we don't have a better way of doing it, and we need to find that better way, but we don't have it right now. But a warning about what that kid would look like versus the other, so we would know to let him pace it at that pace and keep giving him what he does need and will respond to, opposed to start monkeying him and taking him from this program and putting him in this program, and that doesn't work, and we put him over in this program, and it's like starting over from scratch every time he gets monkeyed out and gets put back at square one in each of those different programs. And I had a practicum student like that. He didn't respond. He was one of the one of the slower responders. He had a double deficit. Um, I didn't know as much at the time when I was when I was doing this to know that told the parent that. But if he didn't make gains that she wanted to see after two months, she pulled him and his little sister out of the program, and she'd been doing that for four different therapists. So I think that's yeah. really hopeful, right? Right. Even if it isn't the silver bullet that says that oh we would do this and that was how we would do it, even if it was just a warning sign of hey look. And people would tell you we have that now. Right. But the paper and pencil tests don't always predict perfectly. And yeah. so then, as I said in the talk, Kamiko Haif and others have shown that the brain imaging does add value. What is it like for a kid who's going into one of those tests? What Like, what's the process? They come into the hospital. Oh, for like a brain imaging test? Yeah. Well, yeah, there'll be a recruitment process where they'll the parent will be recruited in some way, fashion, a mm -hmm. flyer. Maybe a friend tells her about it, um, him or her about it, and then then they'll they'll get an informational letter, or they'll get a phone call from a research assistant to try to explain kind of what they're getting in themselves to. You want to come in and do it? They come in, they fill out, they get some legal paperwork about you know what they're going to do and what their rights are, and of course the child, as I said, in there is the one who's really in control because they're the participants. So if they don't want to do it at any point, we stop. 
Um, and then you normally have a training orientation kind of thing with the kids where they're going to kind of orient on what they're supposed to be doing with the task uh, that they'll do in the scanner if it's a functional task. And then they likely, most, I think mostly now, um, I did it for all my research, so they go into what's called a mock scanner. So it's a mock-up of what the scanner's like so they can know what it's going to be like. It's an unusual situation. Yeah, I mean, a lot they're, of they're loud, right? And they're very loud. <laughs> and so if you've got the ability to play some of the sounds, you play some of the sounds. And, um, and then after that, you kind of gauge their... Um, how they're feeling, and then you take them down, and you get them, if it's MRI research, you get all the metal off of them, you make sure they're safe to go in the scan, you make anybody else that goes in the room is safe mm -hmm. to go in the room, uh, you set them up, and you do your you do your scanning, um, then they'll be in there, and there'll be some structural scans where they're just lying in there still and quiet, um, there might be some resting state functional scans, which I, I commonly do in my research, where I just look at the networks in the brain that work when they're not doing anything, but their minds are just left to kind of do whatever they do. Right. Um, and they'll do some functional tasks. And then they come out, and then you know, we thank them profusely, and then they're compensated in some way, shape, or form. And um, then either we bring them back at another date to do more testing, and or they might also do some um, neuropsych type of testing, so some reading and some, some cognitive aptitude testing. How do you know that they're their response to the test inside the this loud, tight, small machine is similar to like what they would experience in a classroom. Is, is well, there any way to know that? That you, you no, that's that's right. So that is one of the issues um, that is commonly raised with the functional imaging is is that um, it isn't very um, ecologically valid in the sense of it isn't what they're doing. They're not sitting at a desk trying to, to, to read um, in a classroom. They're in a tight, confined space with loud noise going on, and all of this is going on. So what we do is we develop um, designs mm -hmm. that will have different conditions, and we'll use the contrast of these different conditions to pull out what we think, um, based on how we design the task, to be various um, processes or sets of processes. Right. And then we will look to see how they respond and how they're working in the brain. And we might look across groups, um, or we might look at response of that to some type of an instruction in one group relative to another group. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to ask those types of questions. So we're we're asking these more fine grain types of questions about reading than we when we do in the classroom. Right. Uh, and we're we're pulling and we're designing the experimental design so we can pull those out to look at it. Um, so they are kind of more contrived. Now. I do have colleagues who have tried to more simulate what it's like with actual reading real text, for example, but they're still in that small space. Right. So um, Nadine Gabe has done something similar to that in adolescence um, with a reading fluency type of task that she's used. Um, and Lauren Cutting was, of course, one of the first that was actually having them read actual sentences and actually try to do comprehension. And, and there were some researchers in Northwestern that were working on similar types of stuff. So we can get closer on the stimuli. But, you know, it's still a tight space that a lot of people are claustrophobic and don't want to be in, so you, yeah. just, you deal with that. So it limits the questions that we can ask. Okay. So we would use different techniques and different approaches to right. try to do it. Um, use light to, to measure the blood flow opposed to magnets. Hmm. Um, let them be in a magnet that doesn't make noise, but it measures the brain um, waves and functions differently. Um, uh, they've got a scanner like that in Houston, for example use electrical signals that are measured off the scalp with EEG 
um, but still that contrived, and you right. any electrical signal from a muscle movement will mess up that. So having a whole bunch of things stuck to your head. Yes. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that one of the big parts, I guess, in the talk was about this area of the brain that is actually smaller um, in children with dyslexia. The brain volume seems to be reduced in those individuals, yes. So in the area that's typically identified um, across the studies is the, um, is the area that corresponds to the inferior parietal, the superior temporal, and the angular gyrus. That cluster and constellation of areas, um, various studies have shown that there's decreased volume um, in adults in children who are um, age matched, and then in a few studies, and then reading match controls, um, where they're, they're younger kids who read at the same level, and then in Nadine Gabe's work out of Boston Children, in preliterate kids who have a family history of dyslexia. We see it across that constellation. If you do confirm this smaller area, what is it? What is it that's missing? Is it is it number of neurons? Is it connections between them? Are neurons some neurons bigger than others? What, how do we find that out? I guess so. This goes back to one of the original hypotheses of um, of dyslexia at a neurobiological level. So it's the geschwind galliverta hypothesis, which is based on some actual brains that were donated to science. And it's a small sample, a very small sample of brains. Right. <laughs> um, and these are post-mortem. So these people had lived lives. Um, they had gone through and had done meticulous work. Gordon Sherman was among the team that did this. And they would go through and they would look at the microscopic level. And what they showed in the human brains was, was that there was a region in the, the area that I was talking about, that superior temporal and that inferior parietal, in the angular area, but it's in that superior temporal and inferior parietal area. <clears throat> in the individuals who were dyslexic, the cells had mismigrated and overshot, so they weren't populating in the area that they were supposed to. So a, a conclusion that could be drawn, and this is actually one that whenever Eden directly um, confronted, and I think did an elegant job of saying we shouldn't be making this conclusion, but is, is that it doesn't mean that that the um, structural findings that we find on MRI are necessarily due to this microscopic neuronal migration issue. Um, and I think that's true. And it made me and some of my colleagues um, in the brain imaging area wonder if it's even the right type of scan to address that hypothesis. Because what Galliberta and his team have been able to do is, is that they've actually been able to then take and find animal models and to simulate and to start looking at, could they generate um, brains that would have this mispopulation developmentally? Hmm. And they were actually able to develop mentally in mice, generate, I'm gonna say, I don't know what the animal model was, but it was an animal model. Could have been mice, could have been rodents, I think it was mice, but we'll, we'll say the animal model. They were able to develop mentally, generate um, this very similar type of um, cell migration issue. So they did the limited kind of case study type of approach, the clinical slide, the clinical model type of approach with the post-mortem autopsy of the, the dead brains comparing them to the typical brains that they had. But then they did the really elegant neuroscience work of going down to animal models and trying to find it. This isn't an animal model of reading, by the way. Right. I mean, we're not trying to teach mice how to read. Right. It's an animal model of can we generate and prove proof of concept that a developmental abnormality, and what would that abnormality be? So they tried different approaches 
to developing that. They looked for hormonal influences and possible gender differences. They were doing all kinds of very elegant work, and they've got a whole series of um, papers that were published um, from the work that they did there. That is typically pointed to as, well, that. That's the best bet we've got right now. Right. And I do believe that, um, that the Dyslexia Foundation and their summer research institution is actually going to address um, as part of their research initiative when they pull all the researchers together for their intensive research retreat, um, that, that issue. Hey, it's been a while. We, you know, this was really well established. It's kind of one of our best links into really what might be going on in this region of the brain that, oh, by the way, the MRI stuff is really showing. Um, is it showing the same thing? Are they measuring the same thing? Is that even the way to do it? Because of the way that that type of scan works right. in the magnetic resonant imaging and the physical properties that are being measured, can't even measure what Galibert and his team were doing. Has there been any ex experiments or studies on children of dyslexic readers who've been through like Wilson program or other things and, and gained some coping mechanisms? I'm just wondering about the genetic component. You know, if if if. I have now changed the environment, so now I have a kid, and, and their environment is very different than the one that I grew up in, but the genetics are still there. I'd be interested to know what what that result would be. People have documented from as early as the work of the Sherwoods is the importance of the parents um, in the home environment. Um, and some of their metrics, they just went into the house and they counted how many books were on the shelf. Um, other people have gotten more elegant. Um, we have data from my research laboratory that because I worked with the parents, and I was asking a similar question as you were. I was an individual who was dyslexic. I, I had parents who really loved me and were trying to give me stuff. And, I, and then I worked with these kids who were dyslexic, and I got to see the, the parental interactions when they would drop them off and interact with them. And um, it made me wonder about the parents' attitudes towards reading. Um, and they all thought it was a crazy question. They kept asking me if I meant, oh, I was filling this out for Susie or Tommy. Right. No, 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 no. Yes, I, I know you think you are. No, mm -hmm. no. Susie and Tommy have their own. It has Garfield on them. We're going to ask them there. They're going to fill that little attitude, reading attitude measures. Um, we want you to do one over here for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and this is these are still unpublished data. We've added to them and we've, we've expanded them, and we're, we're in the process of writing them up. But what we found was is that the parents' attitudes towards reading were strong predictors of how well the students would respond to a multi-sensory um, intensive Gordon-Gillingham-based reading program given at a lab-based um, um, school in a children's hospital. Hmm. So the kids who were getting um, take flight at Texas Brown's Right Hospital for Children, we found that they responded more quickly to the program when my colleague Jerry Ring went back in and tested them three months into the program. I do believe um, that we saw those findings kind of wash out after the program was able to come in there. But it's important to see that that was something that sped the process up for those kids. Hmm. Um, and I do know that there's others, and I can't name them off the top of my head, and this is a hot area of research. Um, and I think that you're asking a more complex question that I think would be a really fun one to answer, and I hope that somebody comes up with a way to do it properly.